Well, um, happy Mother's Day again to all you moms. Um, if ever there has been a year where moms were just incredible and front and center, it was this year where all of you became homeschool teachers and homeschool parents, your greatest dreams come true. Um, no, it, it's been a hard year and moms have done an amazing job. I know our mom and our family, uh, my wife, has done an amazing job with our kids and um, there's a good chance one of the four would not be here today um, <laughs> if it was just me. So uh, I, I wanted to, to give you as moms just the most encouraging, uplifting message I could for Mother's Day because the year has been so difficult. And, and I just racked my brain on what in the world are we going to talk about, what, what should the topic be, what are we going to preach on? And, and after a lot of, of prayer and, and thought, um, I decided to do divorce. Yeah. Um, no, seriously. <laughs> well, and, and the reason is that's where we are in Mark. Um, we come to that part of Mark in, in chapter 10. Uh, and I, I did whatever I could to get it off of Mother's Day, and the, the more I came back to it, it was like, no, this really is a message I want moms to hear today. And so um, that's where we are in, in Mark 10. But if you're just joining us and you haven't been around Shiloh for a while, we started a new series several weeks ago called Messiah, and it's all based off of the middle section of the Gospel of Mark. And Peter's statement in chapter 8, where he says this, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Then he turns and he looks at his disciples, saying specifically Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And so the whole series is based off a question that we're asking, what are the implications of our confession that Jesus is Messiah? So for you and I, or, or maybe for you and you don't or haven't made this confession yet. What are the implications of us saying Jesus is our Messiah? And so I want to start Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as his custom, as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your hearts, or because your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And so here's Jesus kind of just thrown into 
the mix with this question, which, um, as we said last week with the, the end of chapter 9, it seems kind of just thrown in there, like it doesn't really fit with the flow of the gospel. And then here comes this section, which again is kind of just seems like, where in the world did this come from? We're talking about healing people and his power over impure spirits, and, and we, we see this flow of the gospel, and then all of a sudden there's this section about divorce. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of look back, and, and you remember probably from grade school learning about context clues. Y- y'all remember this? Where, where you have these paragraphs that you're reading, and you're trying to look at the context clues to make some sense out of what's going on. So I want to kind of look at a few clues um, as we look at this passage. And first of all, um, how many people remember, if, if you were alive in the 90s, I have no doubt you remember this, but Prince Charles and Princess Diana. And, and their marriage, we know, was very, very public, and it ended in this very messy public divorce. Okay? And it's interesting to talk to theologians who were in Europe, because they said, all the time they were getting questions during this period about divorce. And so newspapers, people who cared nothing about Jesus, nothing about the Bible, would call and say, hey, we want to have your opinion. We want to know what you think about this. And it wasn't necessarily for the point of, we want to know what you think about divorce. It was, we want your cultural commentary on what's happening with this royal family. So I want to talk about another marriage for a second. And this one was a little bit more scandalous. There's a guy named King Herod. And and if you know the Bible, Herod the Great is King Herod, and he's the one in Matthew chapter 2. And Herod has six different wives and at least 11 sons. And two of the sons are named Philip, and the other one is Antipas, and they're the ones that are really important for this story. And Herod Philip marries a lady named Herodias. And what's crazy is Herodias was actually the daughter of a brother from another mother in the Herod family. And so basically, it's Herod's granddaughter that marries Herod. Now, where the story gets really scandalous is Herodias felt that Antipas, because of his rule and reign, had more power. And so she wanted out of the marriage, and so she divorces Philip, and she marries Antipas so that we have more power. And so there's something really interesting, and you might know this from Scripture if you've been around for a while. Because there's a guy that comes on the scene named John the Baptist. You remember this story? And John the Baptist comes in to this royal family, this like Jerry Springer episode, and says, it's not okay for you to marry your brother's wife. And because of that, Herod is angry at John the Baptist. And he has John the Baptist thrown into prison, and then John the Baptist is beheaded. 
Okay, so, so if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story happen uh, over time, right? And this is kind of the backstory of what's happening there when John loses his life. So going back to the story, like I said, there's some context clues knowing that there's this backstory happening right here in the foreground. They show up, verse 1, and they ask Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, let's, wait, yeah, let's go with verse 1, sorry. Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea across from the Jordan. Who was a significant person in the Judean wilderness around the Jordan River? John the Baptist. Going on to verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So, Here's the question they throw Jesus' way. Can you imagine if Jesus says it is not lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Because do you know what the Pharisees can do with this statement? They go to the Roman officials and say, hey, there's this teacher. We don't really like him a whole lot. We're kind of looking to get rid of him. Do you know what he said about your marriage? It's a test. It's a trap. Because they know what Herod did to John the Baptist. Let's put Jesus in the same boat and force him to answer the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Going on to verse 3. What did Moses command you? He replied. So there's the question Jesus throws back at them. What did Moses command you about this? Verse 4. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. What did, what did Moses command you? Here's what Moses permitted. Here's what Moses allowed us to do. Here's what he gave us a permission slip for. And what's really interesting, if you look back at the law there, it really has a bigger purpose than saying, okay, this is okay for you to do. It was about protecting the woman in the relationship who in that culture, by that law, had absolutely zero rights. Because a man could decide for any reason to just say, it's over, the marriage is done, walk away, and she had no right to anything. And so if you really look at the law here, it's really about protection for the woman. It's not Moses saying, I know marriage gets really difficult at times, and it's hard, and there's bad situations, so I'm going to give you permission to do this when you feel like you need to. But the Pharisees come along, and they say, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Going on to verse 5, here's Jesus' response. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. 
There was a reason Moses allowed you to do this and gave you permission. It wasn't because you needed a way. It was because of, and and notice this. I want you to notice this, okay? What's the word that, that happens right here? Your. So questions. Question. Moses lived thousands of years before this moment in time. Were they there? Were they there to hear Moses say, hey, you have permission? No. But what does Jesus say to them? It was because of your hard hearts. He groups them in with these people who were looking for a loophole to get out of a covenant marriage relationship. They wanted out. They didn't want a reason. They didn't need a reason. They just wanted to be able to say, it's okay for me to do this. And I really don't care about this other person that I've committed. There, there was a heart issue back then, and he points at these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, and says, you are in the same group. You, you are a part of them. And then instead of answering their question directly, because they didn't answer his directly, what did Moses command you? Well, Moses permitted this. Jesus goes back to what Moses commanded in the beginning in Genesis 2. Because Moses is the one that wrote this. right? He, he's the one that penned this. And he says in verse 6, But at the beginning of creation, He goes back to the creation story. God made them male and female. He he made them male and female. And then he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There's this point where they cannot argue with Jesus. And his answer is absolutely brilliant. He goes back to the creation story, this narrative, and he says, here's what Moses was telling you. Here's what Moses commanded in the beginning, that you're going to enter into a covenant relationship with another person, and you're going to promise yourself to one another, and in doing this, you will become one. There there is now a new creation that has begun. It's a new world that has begun. This new world where two people have become one. And what has been joined together by God, no one should separate. So so those are Jesus' words here. There is this new creation that has been brought to life. But remember, 
throughout the gospel of Mark, there is always a bigger story that is happening, right? Jesus is on his way somewhere, right? In this section, we're finding Jesus is on this journey. He's on the way. He's leading the way with his disciples. He's trying to get somewhere. We're going to find out where in a a few weeks, where he's trying to get to. He's taking them with him, and they're on this journey. But there's a bigger story unfolding. This is not Jesus saying, hey, you know what? I decided I'm going to teach about divorce right now in the middle of it. Just pause this Mark gospel story. I'm going to teach about divorce, and then we'll get back to, to what really matters. There's something bigger happening. So you go back to the garden. In the garden, God enters into this relationship with man. And what does man do? Man chooses to give his heart, his soul, his mind to someone other than God. And he allows the voice of the accuser, the Satan, to impact his life and to draw him away, to seduce him away from God. And he finds himself on the outside of the garden looking in. And God steps into human history through a guy named Abraham to begin this new family. And this new family, God pursues and pursues and pursues because he loves and he cares about. And they continue to follow, but yet all the time they're getting sidetracked and they're losing sight of their first love. And they're really struggling. And they find themselves years and years later in slavery. And then God sets them free. He leads them through the Red Sea. He sets them free. And he brings them out of this captivity. And then he goes up with Moses, this guy named Moses on the mountaintop. And he says, you you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you in eagle's wings, or on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now... If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Out of all the nations, if you'll obey my covenant, if you'll keep this covenant that we've made together, this covenant that proclaims that we are one, that, that we abide in you, that we live in you, that we have our life in you, if you'll obey this, and follow me, then you're going to be a part of my kingdom. You're going to make a difference in this world because you as my people, my bride, are going to represent me to this world. That's your vocation. That's your calling. And so he takes them up on this mountain and he makes a covenant with them. And he says, I want you to be faithful to me as he's pursued them. And yet, what does Israel do time and time and time again? Chooses to go their own way. Chooses to do their own thing. And I want you to hear how Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, describes the relationship between God and Israel. Because God says, I pursued you, 
and I loved you, and I made this covenant with you. And then in chapter 16, he says this, but you trusted your beauty, right? God has made Israel beautiful, given her fame. You trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make the gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. He says to Israel, to these people who have this covenant relationship with God, you went and became this adulterous generation, this adulterous woman, prostituting yourself to anyone else, lifting your skirt to anyone who passed by. And that's what I think of you. And yet somehow, through all of this, God continues to pursue his bride. To love and care for and cherish. But I want you to go back to Mark 10. To Mark 10, verse 5. And he says this, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Right. Why, why Moses to allow you, allow you to do this? Because you people stopped pursuing me a long time ago. And you didn't care at all about honoring the covenant relationship we had. You didn't care whether or not you were right with me. You used your beauty, you used your fame to chase after everything else besides me. It was because... Your hearts were hard that Moses allowed this. So question. Can you go back to verse 3 for me? Actually, verse 2, sorry. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What was the spirit or the purpose of the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus? And we've talked a lot um, about these two spirits that are very pervasive and just fill this world. There is the spirit of the advocate, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. And there is also the spirit of the Satan, an unholy spirit that, is in, that accuses. That's what, that's what the name Satan means, the accuser, the blamer. What was the spirit 
of their question? Was their spirit to accuse and blame? Or was it to be an advocate for someone? A comforter? A counselor? Their purpose is to accuse. Their purpose was to point the finger at Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, it was because your hearts were hard. Long ago, that Moses allowed. In other words, it's because your hearts are hard that you're even asking this question. Because you're not asking this question, Pharisees, because you're wanting to help people, because you're wanting to bring, you're asking this question because you're looking to accuse. Your motives are right because you're not chasing after God. If you're going to represent me to this world, you need to look like me. You need to follow me. You need to be in love with me. I I am your first love. See, maybe along the way, the Pharisees' priorities were misplaced. And they started to pursue perfection more than they did the perfect one. They started to try to save themselves rather than to pursue the Savior. Rather than loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and putting everything they had in Him, they trusted in themselves. Somewhere along the way, they misplaced their priorities. And, And see, maybe the bigger question that we need to ask, because I'll just tell you, I'm kind of like the Pharisees at times. And I ask these questions not out of trying to help people, but rather trying to accuse or blame. That's kind of our our nature, I think. We we ask these for a reason. We have a, a, a place that we're headed with the question. But maybe the bigger question is, what are we actually for? Right? We did a whole series around this. What are you for? And I was thinking about it in context of marriage. What are we for? We are for marriage. We are for marriage between a a man and a woman for life in this covenant relationship. We are for family. We are for the children that are in this relationship as well. We are for those who are abused. We are for fidelity. We are for purity. We we want to come so many times with the spirit of accusation rather than a spirit of advocacy. We're here for people. And sometimes the greatest ministries we have are to those who have gone through painful divorces because they're hurting and they're searching 
And so often the church has pushed them away rather than inviting them in and saying, there is a place for you here. We are for you and we are for your healing because God is for you and he loves you and invites you in. gotten it wrong so many times but the reason we got it wrong was never because of our theology it was always because of our hearts we get it wrong And we get it wrong not just because we don't understand, but because the spirit that the questions come from aren't the spirit of the advocate and the counselor and the comforter. So so wait, wait, wait. If, If this is really the point, if there's a bigger story and it's really about our hearts, then does Jesus give a cure for our stubborn hearts? Does he give us a way to move on? If this is our problem, that my heart gets hard and I start to lose focus of my first love, does he give us a cure? Does he give us a way out? Does he give us a a, a way to move forward? Listen to verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus. For him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked him. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of of God like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. Go back one verse. What's the cure? Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What's the cure for the hard heart? What's the cure when we misplace our priorities and we start pursuing things that don't matter? When we start to become so legalistic that this is what it says and we don't offer grace. It's not that that we don't say, well, yes, we believe in marriage. We believe in that covenant that people entered into. We want you to succeed. If you're struggling in your marriage, I would say, we'll help you. We'll do whatever we can to walk beside you, and to help you, we will not condemn you. We will stand with you, no matter how difficult it gets. We are for you. We are for people. And the way out of this is that we would become like like a little child to enter God's kingdom. The the little child who who does so so earnestly and so passionately because they love, and I I love my my six-year-old daughter. She's not in here, so I'm going to talk about her 
But this morning, she walks into the living room. I was getting ready to leave, and I said, okay, let's just sit down on the couch for a second. Everyone else in the house was asleep, and she woke up, and Kaylee comes in, and she crawls up in my lap, and she wraps her arms around my neck, and she says, Daddy, I love you. And man, the house, it was quiet and dark, and there's nothing else going on except my little daughter with her arms squeezing my neck saying, Daddy, I love you. I think that's what it looks like to pursue God with that childlike heart and faith. And I wonder, I wonder how often we've misplaced our priorities. And we focused on things that don't matter as much when the thing that matters the most is our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. It matters immensely. And and for those of us who just need that encouragement, who, who need to be reminded of God's love and His pursuit of us, God is crazy about you. He loves you passionately, and he wants you to pursue him. There's a a book in the Bible, it's called Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. And it's this poetic language. And and I think it's both literal, and it's both this allegory. It's literal husband and wife. It's also this allegory of of God and Israel, or God and his people. And and the beloved is searching for God, and he says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. And I will get up now and go about the city. Through its streets and squares, I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. And the watchman found me as I made the rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him home to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. This passionate search for God that I will do whatever I can to follow him and give my heart to him. And listen, that is a pursuit that starts over every single day of our life. Because every single day of our life, our priorities get misplaced and we start to follow and trust in other things besides our Savior. Moms, you have this incredibly difficult task of raising kids. Some of you do it as single mothers and we want to support you in that and we want to love you. But I want to remind you, regardless of what that looks like, regardless of how old you are and how old your kids are at this point of your life, mom, your goal is not to save your children, but it is to point them to your Savior. It's that you would pursue God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you would pass that on to your children. That love, that pursuit. Teach them to love Jesus. Teach them to love people and to follow Him. Because the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we do not sit in the seat of condemnation. We sit in the seat that points people to our Savior. 
to follow him, to give our life to him, to pursue him like a little child so that our hearts, too, do not become hard. Father, this morning, I can speak for myself that I find myself so often in the seat of the Pharisees, wanting to accuse, wanting to blame. And Father, I need to be reminded that above all, I'm married to you. And you are my first love. And if my heart is not in pursuit of you, I will not love my wife well. I will not love and teach my children well. And I will not love the people that I come across well. So Father, like we sang earlier this morning around a table, create in me a clean heart and renew that spirit within me. Not the spirit of accusation and blame, but Father, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of advocacy and love. A heart that is overflowing with love and joy and peace and patience. Father, we we pray that you would build that within us, that you would grow that within us. Father, so that the world would see you. Father, that we wouldn't chase after all the other priorities in this world that don't matter. But Father, that we would walk through the city streets, run through the city streets until we found you and hold you and not let you go. God, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for pursuing us even when we get it wrong. Because Father, our hearts love you. Father, at times we just get distracted and forget that. Father, bring us back. Forgive us and continue to love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.